So how are you doing in your relationships this week? Have you, had, uh, have you had any fights this week? Have you raised your voice? Have you had contention at all? Have you found yourself striving together? Do you have strife in your relationships? Or, you may come to the passage this morning with another need. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you find yourself you find yourself apathetic, and there is not strength for a new day. You're overwhelmed. Um, read a great little article this week about a believer talking about how the sitcom Seinfeld, if you uh, were old enough to watch that and take that in at any length, a few decades ago, Seinfeld um, magnified the uh, the glory of nothing of meaninglessness, of apathy. In fact, it was Seinfeld's glory, it was the writer's glory uh, to, to make an entire show that was about nothing. And they bragged about that. And anyway, great article, maybe come back to it as an illustration another day. But it was never really about anything. In fact, what was wonderful, quote unquote, about all the main characters is that their lives had no meaning. They had no purpose. And they didn't really care about everything that was huge and meaningful and important. But rather, we all loved them because they got very dramatic about the trivial. They got overly excited and fixated and interested in that which ultimately was meaningless and pointless. And we watched and we laughed and we loved it. And, and the problem with too much of that entertainment is it leaves us in a place where now nothing really matters anymore. So all that's truly heavy and weighty and good and rich, we shrug our shoulders and all that's pointless and empty becomes dramatic. It doesn't sound like our age at all, does it? You find yourself apathetic as you face a new day. Maybe you just want your interactions to be more marked by honor and respect would you like people to say of you behind your back, you know, when I hang out with her, she builds me up. When I spend time with him, there's just a sense of dignity in our relationship, in our speech. Or maybe lastly, just in your friendships, you have a desire for more affection. But say, I have, a friend, I have friendships, I have friends, they're good, they're okay, but there's, there's no real affection. It's not what scripture would call brotherly love. Well, if you have any of those needs this morning, then maybe you're in the right place. Now, there may absolutely be other things to address in any one of those scenarios, right? I've set an incredibly tall order for our passage today. Um, surely there may be other things to address, but it's also very possible that at least part of the problem might be you. Could be that part of the problem is us. And it may just be that living for ourselves isn't, after all, all that helpful or all that life-giving. Maybe, in fact, living for the cause of Christ is the most enriching, the most hopeful, and the most glory-filled way to live. That's what I believe this middle section in the book of Philippians is at burden to convey to us. From the end of chapter 1 through all of chapter 2, I believe this idea of the selfless life. We've talked about humility. We've talked about unity. We've talked about other-centeredness. And really, we come to the culmination, I think, of all of those as we come to the close of chapter 2 this morning. 
Humility in Scripture is, I've said this before, the courage to be exactly what God has called you to be. That's humility. Nothing more and nothing less. In each and every circumstance where God has placed you for the sheer pleasure of knowing him. That is a biblical definition of humility, if you want. Here in Philippians, we have seen the beauty of humility already earlier in this chapter. We've seen how God rewards it. God uses humility to bring glory to us and to bring glory to himself. And we see how the mind, we've seen how the mind of Christ is genuine humility. We've seen these things. But the beauty of humility and the unity that it makes so very attractive, these are a work that Christ has to do in us. And they're a work that Christ does in us. And it is, it is hard work, humility, selflessness. It's not what we're naturally geared for. It's not what our world teaches us. And yet, the encouragement of our passage today, as we come to the end of this section, is that God does accomplish it in his children. And that we can make progress in the selfless life. I want to start this morning in a slightly different way. I want to start by taking in the broader context of what Paul has done to this point because I want you to see what Paul's been doing because the dots connect into what Paul is going to do in our passage today, all right? So let's um, take a look really quickly just at the broader context. First, from the context, here's what we have seen. You are called to selfless living for the cause of Christ. You and I are called to selfless living for the cause of of Christ. That's what he has been telling us for some time now throughout this section, these Christians in Philippi. And there are at least four aspects that I want to enumerate, at least four, maybe more. Before I want to enumerate, I would write down these four because these are the dots that you're going to connect. He's taught that this is what we're called to, this selfless living for the cause of Christ. He's taught it through command and he's taught it by modeling. Okay, what are those four things? You can just write down Quickly, these words, others, a focus on others. Second, um, character or worthy living, personal character or worthing, worthy living. Third, that we are servants. You can just write down servants. And fourth, I need to use three words because they're sort of synonymously used, Christ, the gospel, or faith. They're the purpose of all of this. It's for Christ or it's for the gospel. It's for the deepening of our faith. That's what Paul has been commanding and been modeling for it. Now, I want to prove that to you quickly by our context, okay? And I'm going to rattle off some verses, and you can just jot these down, or you can turn and read and look at them. But if you got the four things, you're already in business, so you don't need to sweat it. First, um, others. Take a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. In 2.3, Paul commands us to value others, regard them as more important. We are to give value to others. That's a keynote of this selfless living. And then in 2.4, not just the value of others, but the interests of others. He says, right, do not merely look out, 2.4, for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. All right, need I say more? You get it. Where does he command us to be people of character, to walk worthy? Well, um, you can jot down 127. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. In other words, that's where we are called to walk as worthy citizens. How about 128? In no way be alarmed by your opponents. Not being alarmed in the face of conflict, in the face of your attackers, is a demonstration of character, which Christ works in us because our perspective is much bigger. And even all the way to 215, you can 
Jump ahead to what we just looked at in the verses right before where we're going to be today, 2.15. You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So he has reiterated, he has commanded, and he has modeled for us to be people of character, people who are worthy. Third aspect, how about being servants? Well, in 129, Paul says, to these Christians, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Part of your servanthood will be your suffering for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. In 130, Paul speaks about how he himself has done that, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. I served the gospel. I served Christ. I suffered. And then the fourth aspect, all of this is for Christ, for the gospel, and for faith. I've already read 127 to you about how we are to be gospel worthy. Later in 127, he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together, why? For the faith of the gospel. This is for the gospel. The lives that we are to live are in keeping with the worth of the gospel. 129, our suffering is for Christ's sake, right? You're hearing it. Gospel, faith, Christ is the end game of all of this. And then even jump ahead to 2.16. Paul has not left this theme throughout this entire section. In 2.16, the verse before where we're going to pick up today, he speaks about holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. What is Paul's hope and his purpose? It's Christ's return. Everything he does is that, and it is holding fast the word, the gospel, the faith. So, here's the point in summary. You are called to selfless living. It's not just selfless living in general, right? I don't need the Bible to tell me I should prioritize others, right? I can take any Eastern mystical religion, right? I can take the latest self-help guru uh, book off the shelf, right? I don't need the Bible for any of that. But what Paul says is you are called to selfless living for the cause of Christ, and that changes everything, okay? This is what you and I were made for. Um, You can take the vehicle that the manufacturer has produced, and you can try to get it uh, to run on something besides its chosen fluid that it was designed for, and it will not work well can try and take the life that God has engineered and how he has designed us as human beings to live for him. We're designed for glory. We're designed for the knowledge of him. And then for that purpose, to seek to be selfless, to do it his way. And we will hum. Our lives will sing even as we cry and weep and struggle, even as our circumstances are hard. Heaven will look down on us and sing. The Lord will look down and rejoice over us. It is a corruption of our design for us to seek empty glory. We already talked about that in our passage. I won't go back to that. It is a tragedy when we pursue the wrong kind of praise. We were made for praise, but for heaven's praise. And so our call is... Selfless living for the cause of Christ. When God's esteem is held out to us, when his pleasure is made available to us, 
That is what is life-giving. Rather than fighting and strife, contention and disunity, purposelessness, right? So here's what Paul's been saying all along. Now, Paul capitalizes on this call in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, and we saw this before, by giving us the fuel of this call. Your second point, Christ is your example and animation. Animation is the best word I could come up with. Just work with me. Christ is your example and animation. We took an entire message, entire Sunday to do verses 5 through 11, that incredibly profound passage of Christ's self-humbling, setting aside his glory, becoming a human, taking on the very nature and essence of a servant, and then dying for us the most excruciating, most cursed kind of death in the eyes of both Jews and Romans. That is our model, our example. And, not just our model, that's our animation. It is his very life that courses in your veins. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit lives in you, and it is the life of Christ that animates your ability to live the selfless life. Because Jesus lived it, now he just lives it through you, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. And so that's why Paul, with this impossibly high calling, now turns to the fuel for that calling, the very picture and person of Jesus himself, working in you for gospel living. The Lord Jesus has what you need to live this way. And the Lord Jesus is what I need to live this way. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to, to live richly in me. Lord, I, I need you to dwell richly in me. Colossians 3, Paul exhorts the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell, take up its home in you, find its roots in the soil of you. That's what Paul is doing by holding out the Lord Jesus. So he says, let the mind of Christ be yours by his presence in you. Just pause here and give some, some brass tacks. What does this look like? I suppose at some surface level, it's a little bit WWJD-ish, right? For those of you who lived through that fad and phenomenon, what would Jesus do? Um, the problem with WWJD-ness is um, nine times out of ten, if you ask that question, you won't know the answer. Because if you read the Gospels, more often than not, what Jesus did was utterly surprising and what nobody expected. Jesus constantly seized conversations and, and wrangled them Sometimes I'll say to our kids so delicately, he will take conversations by the throat and make them what he wants them to be. Hey, Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, let me tell you about my return. Where did that come from? You know, and he just, that's what he does. So knowing what would Jesus do is really difficult unless you just spend a whole lot of time with Jesus. And, and his life begins to course through your veins. And, and you are willing, which is the biggest thing. Lord, okay, um, are you calling me to serve here? What would that look like? What would it mean? It might mean to serve by confronting and being very aggressive. It might be serving by being very humble and being very passive. I don't know, but the Lord knows. Um, 
pastor who was a mentor to me, I remember him saying, you can always tell, quick litmus test, you can always tell how well you are doing uh, at being a servant by just checking uh, your response when you're treated like one. That's a quick way to know. Lord Jesus, this is the kind of thing you would do, isn't it? Or Lord Jesus, I don't think what they're asking here is exactly what you would have me do, is it? Christ is your example and your animation. Now, if we had the time, and I did this work this week, but we ain't going to have the time to do a bunch of things this morning, but it is super fun if you want to. If you just want to do a deep dive in this passage, I'm going to give you more homework. I'm going to give you lots of opportunity, but more than we would have time for this morning. You can take those four things, others, character, worth, servants, and all for the Christ gospel and faith, and you can say, where did Jesus do each of those things? And just look at verses 5 through 11. You'll find all four of them. We're not going to have time, okay? But they are there in spades. The point of that is that Paul didn't just pull out of thin air how he talked about Jesus as the model. No, he's perfectly overlaying everything that he says you're commanded to do. Now look at what Jesus did, and oh my goodness, it's exactly what Paul said I'm supposed to do. Now, now we get to the, the preacher's sermon illustration, okay? Paul is the preacher, and Paul now begins to talk about his, his plans to the Philippians, what he's planning to do, even though he's still in prison. He's talking about some other logistics, but, but he is still on the same subject. Once you know, I read one commentator this week that said in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul now shifts to a new topic. No, no. If you don't see what Paul is doing by everything he's talking about, and this as the climax of it, you miss the richness of this passage because Paul is still on the same subject. And so he's now about to make illustration of everything he has said. So third point in your outline, and the encouragement for you and me is this. You can make progress in the selfless life. You can make progress in the selfless life. That's going to be the takeaway. Let's read the passage and let's see Paul's three examples. The Spirit gives three examples. Here we go. Chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Yes, we're finally in, in the Bible now, actually, in our passage. Paul writes, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only not him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. 
because he came close to death for the, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was, was deficient in your service to me. Pause there. What's Paul's point at this stage in Philippians chapter 2? It's this. Selfless living for the cause of Christ is possible. Well, we could assume that because you commanded it. Um, I mean, it's impossible apart from the Spirit. <laughs> but it's possible because you've told us to seek it and do it. Um, but then you gave us Jesus. And whew, I'm grateful he lives in me to make it possible. But that is still a super high calling. And so the Spirit says it's okay. So I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you three other examples with flesh on, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And what you're going to find if you choose this week, take those four aspects that Paul defined, commanded, modeled, you're going to find every one of those four in Paul, in Timothy, and in Epaphroditus. He has not changed subject, has he? The Spirit of God now at this point gives us three pictures of the selfless life to encourage us. One commentator does a great job in a very short summary of, of telling us about the picture of these three men that I'm just going to read to you uh, for background because it is so simple and well done. So we talk about these three guys and then we'll dive in. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus we're together in Rome at this time. This is the assumption that Paul's imprisonment is in Rome. Um, that's not a certainty, but it's the most likely. Paul was a prisoner in his own rented quarters. Though chained to a soldier, he was free to carry on his work unhindered. Timothy, the apostle's son in the faith, had been with Paul for some time. Epaphroditus had been sent from the Philippian church to bring financial support for Paul and to minister to his needs. I believe Epaphroditus' purpose was not only to take the financial gift that would pro provide for Paul's needs while he was in prison. Quick note about prison in those days, there weren't free lunches, okay? It had to be provided some other way. At least that's my understanding. Epaphroditus brings a financial gift and he stays on to minister but in the process, somewhere he gets sick and nearly dies. That's Epaphroditus. These men were knit together geographically, spiritually, and ministerially in a common cause. Each was passionately devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, not consumed with his own interests. For the Lord's sake, each had risked his health, his freedom, and even his own life. That's the three men. Now, what I would commend to you if you want to do a deep dive, take these four aspects, take these three characters, and find each of the four aspects in each of their three lives. I'm just going to highlight a couple for you this morning, okay, to see where Paul connects the dot. First, where the Spirit connects the dots. First, let's look at Paul, and let's look at his focus on others, his focus on others, which is the first aspect. We see it there in verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. When Paul says that he is poured out for them, what is he doing? He is considering their interests first, isn't he? Paul says, I came to you with the gospel at great risk for my own health and well-being for the sake of your interest, just like Jesus left heaven. And even now, I pray for you, and I send you letters, and I hope to come to you again. No, notice here, the pouring out is a present tense. 
Some have said Paul is considering he may die soon, and when he says, even if I am poured out, that means even if I die. But I think in the present tense, I think the idea is not Paul's dying, but Paul's living. Paul's selfless living for the cause of Christ is today, not someday. Just like you sometimes feel poured out, don't you? For certain people in certain situations. Maybe you care for somebody who has a chronic health situation. Maybe you minister to somebody who's in the midst of chronic pain. Uh, maybe it's any other kind of a long-term scenario where you go, yeah, I, I get the words of Paul present tense. But you can make progress in the selfless life, just as Paul did. Uh, he was not a selfless dude before he met Jesus. <laughs> but Christ has transformed him. Also, Paul says here uh, that he is a drink offering. He uses some uh, really cool Old Testament language. If I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, this is a very um, sacrificial system kind of a picture. You would have the animal that would be sacrificed. You might also have with uh, the meat sacrifice, you might have a grain offering. And in many cases, you would also have what was called a a drink offering or a libation. And it could be poured over the animal or it could be poured just straight into the fire, in which case it would probably vaporize and go up to God as an offering in steam. The point is here, that's really cool, is what Paul has just done is he has just given an incredible amount of value to these Philippians. I mean, Paul is the dude who traveled and suffered and lost stuff and got beaten up and got wrongly accused and is now in prison. And, and yet, you know where he is in, in this particular um, Broadway musical? Um, he's the extra. He's not the headliner. What does he say in 17 about them? He says, he talks about the sacrifice and service of your faith. By the way, that's that's offering, that's, that's Levitical, that's priesthood language. Yours is the big sacrifice. Yours is the big offering, he says, and I'm just the dude who's just the cup poured over it. You see how he just gave them value? He says, Philippians, as you see my life, understand you're not called to less. You're called to the same or more. And as you guys offer your life for Christ, I'm there as a cheerleader. I'm there to augment it and to build it up. He's giving value to them. He says, I am your drink offering. By the way, that sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did back in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard his position as something to cling to himself. This is the Apostle Paul saying, though I have position, I, I'm not here to tell you how great I am. I'm just, a, I'm just a bit part in your play. Talk about putting others first. You and I may get to be, be extras in other people's Broadway musical. But you know what? The Father honors humility, and he esteems those who do his service. And when you feel like you're being a servant, 
That might be a painful pill to swallow at times. But look on Jesus and look on Paul. I'm going to let you look at the places that you can find Paul's character and find his worthy living. Jump down to the third aspect, see him as a servant. Because I just want to draw out a couple you might not think of. Um, Notice there in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Look at 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Necessary for you to send Epaphroditus. 28, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. You understand what's going on? Do you think Timothy is of any use to Paul? Oh my goodness, he loves Paul. Do you think Epaphroditus is of any benefit to Paul? Oh, he is a huge. He, he calls Epaphroditus the minister to my need. And yet, what does he do? He sacrifices both of them. He says, you know what? I think you guys need Timothy more than I do right now. Are you kidding me? You're in prison. I think you guys need Epaphroditus right now more than I do. What a servant. Another way you see that his servant mindset is look at how Paul submits himself to the will of God. I love it. Even as he makes plans, he's always thinking about, well, but I'm not God, and God has plans. Look at 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Do you see his submission to God? Because it's there. I hope in the Lord. Hey, I'm going to send you Timothy. Nope. I'll send you Timothy if it's God's will. I think it's God's will. But in the Lord, I will send Timothy to you. How about Epaphroditus? Well, let's look at Paul himself. Sorry, Paul himself, 24. I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. Hey, once this is all done, I'm coming to you. No, if it's God's will. I'll do what the Father wills. This is my desire and my intention, but I'll do what the Father wills. Life's major decisions are a natural subject for our prayer. They're a natural opportunity to trust in the Lord. But not only our major decisions, but also our minor interests. Just the small ways, day by day, we say, you know, I'm interested in this. I'd like to do this. I don't know. You think God cares about that? You have not because you ask not, Jesus says. <laughs> and there's more, but he wants us to ask. And so submit those things into his hands, and that's a great place to be. That's part of the way that we make progress in the selfless life is just by allowing the Lord to guide our little day-by-day -day decisions as well as our giant ones. Brothers and sisters, you and I can make progress in the selfless life because Jesus took an arrogant, murderous blasphemer and made him a model selfless man. And if God can do it with Paul, pretty sure he can do it with you and he can do it with me. Let's take a quick look then at Timothy. Look at verses 20 to 22. There's lots more here, but we'll just focus on these. I have no one else of kindred spirit, he says, Paul says. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. I just want to highlight one aspect 
And that's the other-centeredness of Timothy. You can look up the other three, but his others-centeredness. Don't you love what Paul says of Timothy? I have no one who is genuinely concerned for you like this man, Timothy. Your welfare, he says, when I send Timothy, that will be his priority. He will be there for you. If you're the Philippians, don't you feel incredibly blessed? I'm taking the very best I have to offer, and I'm sending him to serve you. Where have we heard that before? It's what the father did with the son for us. I'm giving you the very best I have to offer completely for your benefits. Timothy is of a very unique relationship with Paul. He has a very special father-son relationship with Timothy because Paul led Timothy to faith in Christ. I love that. But, but there's also more than just that. Timothy himself has now chosen the selfless life, just like Paul has, right? And, and he, he is invested, he is fully invested for the cause, just like his father in the faith. How rare it is to find those who, for the sake of Christ, seek their joy in making Christ first and making themselves third. That's a rare person to find, isn't it? I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Man, that's a high calling for my life. It's a high calling for your life. But the Spirit of God does it in real-life human beings just like us. And that's encouraging. Paul singles out Timothy here. I have no one else. I don't think this is a, a, a backhanded criticism of everybody else. In fact, I would say, yeah, of course, everybody else does seek their own interests. I'm like, yeah, that's how we all are. I'm not surprised by that. But I don't think Paul is trying to downstream anybody else. He's just saying, this is how unique Timothy is. And I think Timothy's preeminence is partly because he's so like Paul. He spent so much time with Paul that Paul's affections have become his affections. Paul's actions, Paul's way of thinking, and Paul's choices, Paul's sacrifices. Timothy's like, I came to follow this guy so that he could teach me how to walk with Jesus. I guess I'll just do what he does. Timothy has come by selflessness genetically, it seems. He, he's learned it from his spiritual parentage. Alec Motier, one commentator, says this, there is nothing forced or artificial about Timothy's concern for the Philippians. By the way, Timothy was there when they first met the Philippians in Philippi in Acts 16 the first time. He was there to see them come to Christ. He was there to see Paul get beat up. He was a part of the whole thing, and he himself, I believe, had a love for them. Motier says it was the genuine product of a regenerate nature. When Timothy was born again and then brought into interaction with these people, his heart went out to them. I would add one more thing. I would say it was also, I would say it's also because of his deep experience of having tasted the satisfying fruit. He has seen Paul cry tears of joy in prayer over the Philippians. 
Lord, I love these people. Thank you so much for what you've done, the lives you've changed, the people that have come to Christ, how they've thrown away their idols, how they're, they're suffering for you and the choices they're making and the glory of what you're doing in them. Lord, thank you for the Philippians' eternal life in Christ. And Timothy saw Paul pray prayers, probably something like that. And he goes, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want to just give my life away to see somebody else grow in Christ? That is worth dying for. Timothy came by it sort of naturally, I think. Paul uses a sweet term of Timothy there in verse 20. I have no one else of kindred spirit. The seminary I graduated from sends out a monthly periodical, and the title of the periodical is Kindred Spirit. Where'd they get it from? Came from the Bible. Good. I went to a biblical seminary. Um, as far as I know, it's the only time in Scripture that the term is used. Literally, uh, the term means same soul. Timothy and I are of the same soul, uh, right? It's, uh, I think, is it Jane Austen would have called, uh, this is my bosom friend. Is that Jane Austen? Do I have it right? Who? Anna Green Gable. Wasn't that wasn't Jane Austen who wrote that? Some other person wrote that. It, but anyway, I'm super confused. Somebody wrote that, and she's a great writer, and it's a cool term. Bosom friend. Same soul. All right, whatever terminology fits for you. Uh, bosom friend isn't super manly, so men, you know. I'm taking suggestions, and we'll decide on that for next week. But he has the audacity to call Tim, Timothy, that he is my same-souled friend. Maybe if we can say I've never, I've never had anybody in my life I could say that of. M maybe it's because we haven't embraced selfless living for the cause of Christ. If nobody can say that of us, maybe it's because... We don't yet know that glory and that joy. And when he says of Timothy in 21, they all seek after their own interests. I don't know. Have you heard that phrase anywhere else before? Ding, 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 ding. Chapter 2, verse 4, right? That's exactly what he commanded. He uses the same words of Timothy. Oh, and by the way, I'm just going to tell you a dude who did exactly the very thing and didn't and doesn't look out for his own interests, but he looks out for the interests of others. And how does he do it? By looking out ultimately for the interests of Christ. That's what he says in 2.21. Am I just to be a doormat? Am I never to be concerned for myself? Am I just to go around and let people walk all, all over me? No, I've never said that. And neither does Paul, and neither does Scripture. You just decide you're going to spend your life. Uh, spendamai, by the way, is the Greek word that's used in this passage. I love that. It just happens go along with the English. Spend am I your life. Why? For Christ. And he will bring about the focus on others in the process. You and I can make pro progress in the selfless life. Timothy was probably a man who by nature was rather timid. We glean that from other or exhortations that Paul writes to his son in the faith. And yet, the Lord took a guy like that and made him a profound leader. He wasn't, he wasn't just a pastor or leader of a church in the first century. He was more like a bishop. He was like a pastor of pastors. He was like over the region of Ephesus. 
I'm sure that didn't come naturally. And how did it happen? Through a fearless focus on serving others for Christ. You can make progress and so can I. Third picture is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, pretty cool name. Not enough people named Epaphroditus running around today. Look at 25. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Paul is going to give him five titles. Three titles that are with relation to Paul. Two titles that are with uh, Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus' relation to the Philippians. Five titles. My brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and your minister to my need. He's, he's got a lot to say about what he thinks about Epaphroditus, doesn't he? Isn't that cool? We can just take one. I, I love the idea of fellow soldier. Brothers and sisters, do you feel like you have someone who is in the trenches with you for the sake of your faith in Christ? People who will pray with you, people who will call you. Um, hey, I know we prayed for you yesterday. I know you have this appointment today at 11. It's 12.15. How'd the appointment go? I've been praying. Who is in the trenches with you, right? Paul and Epaphroditus were in the trenches together. It's his fellow soldier, his fellow worker. But I'm just going to key on the idea that he's his brother. What, what a great title. It's cool because he's just called Timothy my son in the faith. He led Timothy to Christ. That's a unique relationship. He, he may not have, probably didn't, we don't know, led Epaphroditus directly to faith, but he said he's close as a brother to me. Here's what you need to appreciate. This proud Pharisee and this child of pagan Gentiles have become close brothers. Epaphroditus, child of pagan brothers? Where do we get that from? We know almost nothing, almost nothing about Epaphroditus. One thing we do know is his name, Epaphroditus. Uh, do you hear the word Aphrodite in the name Epaphroditus? Because the name of the meaning of his name is favored of Aphrodite. His parents were pagan Greek idol worshipers. And then he came to Christ. As a, as a good, well-taught Pharisee, as a rabbi, this would have been his sworn enemy. He was a pagan idol worshiper. This guy was a goyim, as far as Paul was concerned. He says, he's my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. He's in the trenches with me. Love that. I think you could take this passage, brothers and sisters, and you could study through it with your small group and you could pray over it at the end of that time together in your small group. I think you could do it in your family devotions. I could think you could do it one-on-one -on -one with a dear friend and say, God, would you make us more this? Brotherly affection. Would you create in us a fellowship together in the work? Would you make us partner soldiers in the fight? Would you allow us to minister to one another's needs? right? Working and serving together, fighting side by side, brothers and sisters in service like a family. This is what a community group is meant to be. This is what brothers and sisters are meant to be. Believers are meant to grow in love as they strive together for the gospel. Striving together, koinonia, that's the word for fellowship. It's one of the key words in this book, and they stand firm in one spirit. Be a great study, to, uh, to do together if you chose. Epaphroditus' life was marked by service to others. 
that's, that's what we see. Um, I want you to just notice one other uh, thing in 26. I love this about Epaphroditus. Paul says, he was longing for you. Epaphroditus was longing for the Philippians, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Can you wrap your brain about that? Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies in the process of traveling to wherever Paul is, bringing the gift and serving him. And Epaphroditus, nearly dead, has what? Primary concern on his part, his heart. He hears that his family and friends back in Philippi learned that he nearly died. And Epaphroditus says, oh, my heart is heavy because they're sad because I almost died. That's, that's a dude who's clueless, right? He doesn't, even, he doesn't even get how to care about himself, right? Like, you're so upside down. You're, you're nearly dead. I don't know when the concern came during or after the near-death experience. But that's beautiful, isn't it? He was concerned because you guys were grieved that he was almost dead. He wasn't so concerned that he was mostly dead. He's more concerned for you guys. I had a sweet little picture this morning, didn't, didn't plan for it at all. Our youngest daughter drove to church this morning. We get out of the car, and we're walking in. She's carrying stuff for me because there's always more stuff than I can carry on Sunday morning. And uh, she says to me, because she thought of this as she got out of the car, hey, Dad, remember the time I hit my eye on the car? I was like, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> I said, no. She goes, no, no, remember the time I closed the door, and the edge of the door, she's just the right height, the top edge of the door caught her eye. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that, sweetie. She goes, yeah, I tried not to cry. I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And here's what she said. <laughs> she said, I, I didn't want to cry because I didn't want you to feel bad for me. <laughs> that sounds like Epaphroditus. <laughs> I, I wasn't worried about being in pain. I just didn't want you to feel bad that I was in pain, so I didn't want to cry. She'll probably go straight to heaven just for that. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. You can look at the other four aspects of selfless living for the cause of Christ, and you'll find them. One last thing I want to just say. Um, verse 30, is this a, another potential backhanded compliment <laughs> or uh, a backhanded uh, attack? When Paul says, I have no one like Timothy, I don't think the point of that is to tell other people how bad they are. It's just to say how unique Timothy is. How about verse 30 about Epaphroditus? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Is Paul telling the Philippians, you know, you guys sent me money, you prayed for me, you love me, and you care about me, but you're pathetic. But at least you sent Epaphroditus so that your deficient service could be fixed. No. It's not an ideal translation in the English. Um, I would say it this way. Paul uses the word in other places, and uh, I think the right, uh, I won't go into all that. The point is this, what was left of your service? The, the Philippians had done everything they possibly could do for Paul in his situation and their situation, right? They were praying for him. Uh, they'd sent money to him. They, they were cheering for him, right? They'd done everything they could, except what? What could they not do? They couldn't be there. That was the only thing that was left. And so what they do? They, they bead there. They bead there through Epaphroditus so that he could be there and fill up what was left in their service. And what's the point of that? You Philippians have served me in every way you possibly could. That's the point. 
And what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful relationship. All right. For the sake of time, we're going to go quickly through this last part. But woo, we're going to make it. Um, let me wrap up this one. The point of Epaphroditus is he became great. Epaphroditus became great in the cause of Christ. Right? Look, look at 29. Receive, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. How did he become great? Legendary. Answer by being a servant. You and I can make progress in the selfless life because Jesus took a man from an idolatrous background who was just willing to be faithful. He was just willing to wash feet. He was just willing to do whatever was the need of the day. I, I, how could Epaphroditus have gotten away for a few weeks? I mean, didn't the guy have to work? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the guy was jobless and unemployed. It's, I have no idea what station of life he had. But he went for the kingdom just to be a servant. And when circumstances befell him through his willingness to serve and his love of others, he became a legend. Epaphroditus' name will never, never disappear for all eternity. It's written in the word of God. And that's a pretty cool glimpse for me and for you, isn't it? Lastly, then this morning, let's just talk about the motivation we have in all of this. And that in that now we, now we see fruits of the selfless life. Fruits of the selfless life. There are four fruits that are mentioned in this passage. Selfless living for the cause of Christ. Number one, selfless living for the cause of Christ, number one, creates unity. It creates unity. Book 17, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice, Paul says, and I share my joy with you all. Um, actually, the word there literally means co-rejoice. But to say I rejoice and I co-rejoice with you just sounds like dumb English, but it's good Greek. And then what does he say in 18? And you too, I urge you to rejoice and also to co-rejoice with me. Same two words. Let's all rejoice and co-rejoice together. What's he talking about? Unity. Why? Because we're selflessly giving ourselves to each other for the cause of Christ. Paul, God has created a profound unity between Paul and the Philippians that runs through this passage. It's so sweet. Paul, God, has created a profound unity between Paul and Timothy. Verse 20, I have no one else of same soul. What a profound unity. And on and on you can find others. Do you have people who laugh with you? Do you have people who cry with you? Because selfless living for the cause of Christ, Christ creates those kinds of bonds with people in our lives. It's what, it's what you were made for. It's what I need. It's what we all need. Second, selfless living for the cause of Christ produces joy, produces joy. Verse 18 and 17 has joy and rejoice at least four times. It's a keynote of the book of Philippians. It's all over this book, so I won't say any more about that. You can find it if you want. The point is this, when we get to be used by God for the benefit of others, then that is eternally satisfying, isn't it? Youth leaders, you minister to students. I mean, let's face it, mid-schoolers are, are just... They're in a wonky 
phase of life, man. I mean, they're, they're just messy. But when you see the Spirit of God do something in their life and you say, you know what, I got to be a part of that. That was an eternal thing. Thank you, Lord. Parenting is messy. Uh, serving friends is messy. But it is eternal and satisfying. It's the best investment you'll ever make. And that produces joy. Third, selfless living for the cause of Christ is deserving of honor and admiration. It is deserving of honor and admiration. I just commend to you Epaphroditus again and what Paul said about him, hold him in high esteem. You can see the same thing for Paul and the same thing for Timothy. If you look, you'll find it. Here's the point. You are at your best when you are making others better, right? That's what Paul says. You can do this. You can grow in this, but you have to decide up front what your target is because if you don't decide consciously and, and align your aim for that target, then the world is, is, you know, pointing the bow for you. Your selfishness will unleash the arrow in a different direction, and you won't even know it. But you're at your best when you're making others better, and that is worthy of honor. Fourth and finally, last fruit of selfless life, selfless living for the cause of Christ provokes affection. It only, not only creates unity and produces joy, but it provokes affection. Paul says of Timothy, he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. I want you to notice two sides of that, a child serving his father. What a sweet thing that, what a sweet place in Paul's heart Timothy must have, knowing that he esteemed Paul so well. But you also need to see one little word right in the middle of that verse. I missed it. Grateful for the commentators. They pointed it out. I see it. And now I can't help but see it. Middle of verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served me in the gospel. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. You know how he served me in the furtherance of the gospel. No. What does it say? He served with me. He did serve Paul, there's no question. But he, Paul, has such affection for Timothy and so much respect that he says, we as fellow soldiers in this fight, we serve together. Paul loves Timothy. Verse 25, three different titles he gives Epaphroditus. Paul loves Epaphroditus. You will love those that you serve for the sake of Christ. And you will love those that you serve with for the sake of Christ. It's a, it's a God-ordained dynamic. You want to love somebody better. You're struggling to love people. Serve them. Pray for them. And you will start to love them more. That's probably one of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard in seminary about the nature of pastoral ministry. But it doesn't have to do with pastoral ministry in any sense uniquely. It has to do with all ministry to everyone. Right? Choose to serve the people of God, and you will find that you love them. That's, that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Brothers and sisters, do you have some strife in your relationships? Is there contention regularly? Is that what marks your friendships? Do you sometimes find yourself, find yourself apathetic as you face a new day? 
or positively, do you want your interactions to be more marked by honor and respect? Or do you just wish that your friendships had more affection in them? Well, then it may just be that living for ourselves just isn't all that helpful. <laughs> it just isn't all that life-giving. And maybe living for the cause of Christ is the most enriching, most hopeful, and most glory-filled way to live. May God make it so. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the very human examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus who were imperfect and sinners in their own right, and yet you did a transforming work in them to make them models. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your life now lives in us, who, those of us whom you have saved and you've come to live in us to make us more like this. This is what we want. Give us your wisdom, Lord Jesus, to serve you in all things, whether it's a service through um, speaking up or a service through not speaking. Whatever it means, whatever it looks like, Lord, service for you, that's glorious and that's life. Let us learn from these godly men. Let, let us learn from the godly men and women down through the ages in the body of Christ and even in our own lives. Thank you for those who laugh with us and cry with us. Thank you for those who put our interests before their own. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ who did not consider his position as something to cling to, but he laid it aside and served us. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our hope, and the one who ministered to us. Lord, grow us in this and let us be marked by the selfless life we ask. In Christ's name, amen.